Welcome to the Addiction Connection. We like to believe the opposite of addiction is actually connection, and we are going to attempt to educate you and possibly even entertain you while we navigate all topics addiction. Hi, I'm Dr. Kirk Devine. And I'm Dr. Heather Bell, and we both provide primary care and addiction services. It's our goal to help you learn more about the disease of addiction and its treatments. Welcome back. Yes, this is... One of the lost. This is one of the next episodes. The lost episode. The lost episode. We promised you, especially you, Dan, out in Maine, a bit ago. <laughs> but we don't even know what the real number is going to be. And so if somebody's trying to track us, track us with their numbers, it's somewhere between 100 and 150. Right. <laughs> <laughs> We're just, yeah, there's a long backstory to this. It's, you know, maybe. Maybe in 10 years, we'll release the director's cut, <laughs> the uncut episode. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Which one is it? Nope. Nope. She never knows I which never one know it is. I never know which one it is. Say it. No. <laughs> Say it. Don't spray it. There it is. Oh, yeah, yeah, that lost episode. <laughs> that <so>. lost episode. <laughs> oh, yeah. man. Yeah, we got maybe it's, a little out in the weeds on that one, but no yeah. way, today, we're, we're solid. Yeah, we're going to be focused. So in case uh, most of you all recognize... Charlie's voice, I think we should probably say, yeah, here oh, we hello, are. With, world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Charlie Reznikov. And when you say world, I have a friend now in Europe, Ireland, maybe. Ireland. And, and Australia that have Whoa. messaged. Mm. I I would love to go back to, I've been to Ireland once and Australia once. And I would, those each of those countries, I would love to go back. Australia. To. I want to come Just visit amazing. this one because she lives in like the back country and I've only been like. In Australia. Mm-hmm. Wow. I know. I'm like, okay, I got to go all right. out there. Amazing. All right, let's get back to what we're doing here. Oh, yeah. But I should say one thing that if you should Google Charlie Reznikoff's uncle, who's the poet. Oh, oh my father's uncle. Your father's uncle. Yes. Famous it's, poet. It's really handy because anyone who tries to Google search me, he's takes all the hits. You know? He's you know? more famous. He's more, yeah, he'll always be more famous. So you'll mean, always like- get to him. Instead, and you'll have to dig harder to find any dirt on me. Bizarre, because my kids are like, "Mom, I see you on the internet." I'm like, "Yeah, don't do that." Um, no, but I really want to. So this this whole talk today, we're talking about methadone clinics or OTPs. This episode is going to talk about like pre-COVID and yep. just kind of the intricacies of the clinic. Yep. And this was inspired by Dan from Maine. Dan from and Maine. I, so I want to say, you know, Australia friend. Um, should, should we call him Dano? <laughs> No. <laughs> okay, just checking. It's a little for overly familiar. For, for but our friend yeah. from um, from Australia had a lot of amazing questions about buprenorphine during oh. pregnancy specifically. Oh. And, you know, she's listened to the one in pregnancy and things like that, but had a lot more very good things we haven't addressed. So at some point we will get there. Not necessarily. Got it. Today is day. Well, in methadone during pregnancy, you know, if we have time, we can spend out. 30 seconds talking about that as well. Um, but yeah. So take it away, Charlie. Okay. Um, and I think we talked a little bit about methadone on this podcast before, or is this the first real dedicated podcast? Pretty I, much the first. Okay. Let's just assume it's the first because okay, otherwise cool. it's been. We're going to pretend because yeah. we're so messed up. Yeah. I mean, I think <laughs> we what, don't know I'll, what we said before that's lost. I'm, yeah. It's all a blur for the me. The drudge is in my computer. Um, so, you know, I will just start by saying there's what probably we all call OBOT clinic. And then there's also OTP clinic. And methadone is an example, at least in America, is an example of an OTP clinic, an opioid treatment, treatment. program. Mm-hmm. 
OTP clinics are sort of federally regulated and are paid for differently and are structured differently. And an OTP clinic is like directly observed therapy for opioid use disorder. It's almost always methadone. You can be in an OTP clinic and get buprenorphine. We have, you know, we have 600 methadone patients and, you know, maybe... I don't know, a couple dozen buprenorphine patients. So OTP clinic doesn't necessarily mean methadone, but usually an OTP clinic's a methadone clinic. Usually right, so synonymous. I mean, and that's kind of what I was just saying, oh, you go to the methadone clinic. Because yeah, I don't exactly. think patients even necessarily, like, it's the methadone clinic. Yep. So I want to touch on that because you said, you know, the whole federally thing. And it was obviously a federal thing because of when it came to be it was you know the stigma judgment trying to keep people protected do you know is there any talk about getting rid of that at any point changing some of the federal guidelines or and the oversight yeah i mean i there is a lot of talk about loosening or changing or giving new options and for the people internationally maybe the maybe ireland is such as this and i don't know what australia does but um in England, methadone is accessed through primary care clinics and pharmacies. Uh, so, yeah, for sure. And that has been talked about here. How can we change things to increase the access to methadone therapy? Mm-hmm. It is pretty restrictive and it's very specific. And it's also, I was thinking about this on the drive up. Methadone therapy kind of came into being and a lot of the... Um, regulations came into being in the 70s mm-hmm. and who was addicted to opioids in the 70s is very different from today right and and there's a lot of like potential bias and stigma towards the groups that had opioid addiction heroin addiction in the 70s and opioid addiction today is way more widespread across all demographics and politics and regions and everything like that so yeah a lot of these regulations were created in a different era when the opioid epidemic of the 70s was very different, affecting different people. And that was the only option. And it was the, yeah, and it was the only option. It's just interesting because I don't know how I feel about it all going into primary care, especially because there is another option now. And I think my fear in that is just, it's higher risk, you know, yeah. with the, a lot of, in, in my opinion, there's, there's a little bit, I mean, there's more risk with yeah. the overdose and I don't know. I guess I don't yeah, know how to feel um, about that. Well, the, I think especially the diversion risk is higher. Um, I think that's the mortality for people who are enrolled in methadone is improved. And the mortality in buprenorphine patients is also improved. And those improvements are about similar. It depends on the study. But the benefit to the enrolled patient, whether it be buprenorphine or methadone, are about similar. But you're right, diverted methadone is a higher risk by far than diverted buprenorphine. So that is the concern. Mm. Um, The other other sort of model, which I think America is looking at, is the Portugal model in which there's uh, basically methadone trucks, mobile methadone units. Portugal is a small country. They have these little trucks. They basically said, we're going to make methadone available to anyone anywhere in our country who has opioid use disorder, Mm Um, and it's worked. Methadone has really improved their overdose death rate. Uh, and so you can imagine, and they were, that was talked about, and it's even been done in America, but it's not not done often. See, so I the see the mobile methadone huge system. benefit to that because, yeah. I mean, we should talk about that at some point here with 
getting to the clinics with, you, oh, know, yeah. and, you know, the rules as far as how often we'll get to that. But for people who have two hour drive one way to get to their clinic, if there was some type of mobile ability, because yeah. then you wouldn't need necessarily that structured standalone building. You, you could probably do with less staff. You could. The other, the other innovation along those lines is to have pharmacies dispense the methadone doses even on a daily basis, but still have the primary clinic do counseling. And maybe that could even be telehealth counseling. The physical visits in the primary clinic could be less often, but the person could still get daily dosing at a local pharmacy. And that's yeah. another way to prevent all that. Driving. Well, and you right. know, I just ran into this patient that's riding, you know, an hour and a half each way. To yeah. go to a methadone clinic. And, and it breaks my heart. Yeah, it's terrible. Yeah. And, you know, in rural Minnesota. So, you know, one of the things I've always wondered is, why isn't methadone a second step? Like, why isn't buprenorphine, if you fail buprenorphine, why isn't methadone, you know, could that be a model? Yeah, that's interesting. That's an interesting thought. I mean, I think uh, the counterpoints would be patient choice. We In the metro area, so I'm a very... Uh, I both have Metro and I also work in Lonsdale, which is outside of the Metro. And when I go to Lonsdale, which would be an hour from the nearest methadone clinic, by default, buprenorphine is the first choice. Yes. Yeah. Because nobody really wants to spend two hours every day no. going to a methadone clinic and back. So by default, buprenorphine is the first choice. But there are some people down there in Rice County that drive to the methadone clinic every day. But, you know, I mean, this patient choice thing, think about it. If you have insurance and your doctor gives you a certain med, you don't necessarily get that med. Yeah. You get the med that's that's given to you first, and you have to somehow qualify to get the next one. Yep. Yeah, for sure. And, and one thing that some insurance companies have done is if you are getting a medical ride to a distant methadone clinic, but there's a closer one, they've sometimes, some insurances have tried to get the patients to have to transfer to the closer because mm -hmm. they don't want to pay for the long medical ride when it, there's a shorter medical ride. So I've seen that happen. But the access I mean, even in availability in that clinic, because mm -hmm. we've tried to help facilitate some of those oh, conversations right when the now. patient relocates, especially if they're in treatment and then they stay there. I mean, you can't, the new one won't take them. Or yeah. Oh, right. So right now, everything is totally amplified because um, in Minnesota and I bet throughout America, LADCs, which I, I don't know if that's a state or national designation, but the addiction counselors, mm -hmm. licensed addiction drug counselor, licensed alcohol and drug counselor, LADCs um, are in really short supply. It's mm. like the great resignation has affected methadone clinics. So um, we really need more LADCs to be trained in Minnesota. And my guess is probably all of America. Um, and that has affected the LADCs. And this gets to how OTPs work. Each LADC, each addiction counselor in an OTP can have a caseload of up to 50 patients. Mm. Often they might have 40 patients or 45 patients, but up to 50 patients. So if an LADC leaves, quits, you're down an LADC, that limits the total number of patients you can have in your clinic. So if you, for example, if you had 20 LADCs and they could each have a caseload of 50 patients, then you could, your clinic could see 1,000 patients. Right. But if one of the LADCs quit, then now you're down to 950. 
Mm. And if another LADC quits, then now you're down to 900. And if the clinic looks at their LADCs, their counselors, and say, hey, they're all capped, we like literally by regulation, we can't take extra patients. It's, mm. it's sort of in a way, it's like the buprenorphine limit. Each buprenorphine provider can only treat 30 or 100 or in my case, maybe your case, 275. 275, we can. You, you know, but, but once I'm at 275, if I ever got there, if someone wants to come see me, they can't. And it's the same with the methadone clinics. Is like, And right now in our community, a lot of the methadone clinics are really close to their cap and they're really nervous about taking extra patients. That's not they just don't want to. They want to. They just don't have the counselors. Wow. So, so let's talk a little bit about... And, and I and this was like my second part of the question would be as far as is it better or more advantageous to have a patient in, in an OTP getting methadone versus buprenorphine as far as cost wise. But I think first let's go to how does it even work? How does an OTP work? Yeah. Who pays for it? Like why the daily? All the things. Yeah, it's I mean, I think think about it as directly observed therapy, mm-hmm. at least at first. You're coming in six days a week for the first 90 days. Uh, you'll often get your Sunday off. So six days a week and the, a nurse, you'll you know, come into, the, come into the lobby. Usually most OTPs are sort of, you can enter our clinic anytime as long as we're open. Just dry, It's like a drop-in clinic. So you enter the lobby and then you wait for your turn and then you go to a dispensing area where you have like a private interaction with a nurse. The nurse observes you, makes sure you're okay. Um, gives you a dose and observes you drinking your methadone dose. Um, when that's done, see you tomorrow. Uh, and mm. you, you're and now other things, there's lots of other bells and whistles. Like you have a, in addition to doing your directly observed methadone therapy, there's a counselor who the counselor's job is to counsel you at least once a month. But at first it's once a week. And then it, is that you, time, gen, a certain amount of time? Uh, I don't think that there's a certain amount of time there's required documentation they have to do. So they have to cover a certain amount of topics okay. and documented okay. a certain way, but they can be quick or slow. And I'm actually, I've never sat in on one of those counseling sessions. So mm. I think it's probably very counselor dependent, um, honestly, but, uh, you have once a week counseling. And then when you're established once a month counseling and quarterly treatment updates, so you have all these sort of required counseling interactions with your counselors. I'll comment on that later because that's changing in Minnesota, um, at least as an experiment that's changing in Minnesota. And then also your counselors, separate from the required counseling, they may want you to stop. Hey, I saw you were recently hospitalized for a psychiatric issue. Is everything okay? Can we connect you to services? Or can I help you find new housing? Or can I whatever, help you fill out this paperwork to get transportation or apply for state insurance or whatever Mm -hmm. it is. So the counselors do a lot for the patients and that can be the required counseling or can just be like sort of extra counseling. Um, Then there's drug screens. Okay, so really quick question though with that. So they can come in any time. So there's no like schedule. Mm -hmm. So when they come in and they're just like file, I can just imagine like a... Rolodex, which clearly is an EMR now, yeah. but I don't even know what a Rolodex is. Yeah, you do. <laughs> <laughs> you still have one. It's, it's an expensive watch. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's funny. So that's got to be. It, it's probably pretty quick, but a little bit chaotic. I'm sure at different times of the day. Yep. 
Um, so what's an average time of patients there for just a regular visit versus like if they're there for a counselor visit and how does the counselor keep that all straight if there's no schedule? Yeah. So yeah, there's a totally a complex system, but you know, when they, they, the first thing they do is they check in at the front desk and then there's alerts on their file and the, the alert might be needs to give a drug screen, needs to go into a counseling room. We're going to call the counselor. If the counselor's on break, then there's someone we designate every day is the officer of the day or the counselor of the day who um, swoops in and covers the counselor. Worst case, they the patient goes and we talk to them tomorrow. But they, they check in at the front desk. Uh, and at that point, if we know we want something from them, we've, you know, it, it alerts the front desk person and we have the patient wait or give a drug screen or whatever it is. Um, if not, if there's no issues today, they can just get their dose and go quickly. Okay. Unless they need something, because they will often come to the front desk and say, hey, I want to talk to my counselor today. I don't like my dose, or I've got an issue, or whatever it is, I want to talk to my counselor. And in that case, they'll call back to the counselor. And then, like I said, if the counselor is working from home, which can happen, because sometimes during COVID, you have a subset of your counselors working at home, or if the counselor is on break, then you have the uh, uh, the counselor of the day can fill in. Hmm. So that's that. Um, usually, so there's the the clinic has there's multiple waves throughout the day. The people who are employed and have to get to work get a, the the beginning of the day is dedicated to okay, employed I'm just people. Ask if so they if they demonstrate they have employment, they get a special sort of like. In our clinic, there a are fast, a lot of, it's a fast pass. Fast pass, exactly. <laughs> and so, actually, there's a lot of stigma around at 6 a.m. and you see the people lining up outside the methadone clinic. A lot of times, those are the people who are like totally employed it's and stable, stable and mm-hmm. they've earned the fast pass. And so, they're the ones at 6 a.m. lining up and they're doing it not because they're mm. desperate for the dose, they're doing it because they got to get to work. Sure. And so that's to, a good way of thinking about it because I don't think. Well, you see it at Caribou when you go there. <laughs> I'm that, desperate for my okay. caffeine. Yeah. Anyway, Seriously, yeah, that, no. that was funny. That was, that was, you actually, the, there's your funny for the next couple episodes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, people waiting outside for the Caribou to open. Yeah, and they're for there. Sure. <laughs> I that, run by that, them. Is this true? Yeah. Oh. But that's interesting because no, we funny. don't look at that any differently. Here we are. Yeah. yeah. That is funny. Uh, and then, and then the other end of the spectrum is right before closing time. The people who sleep in or maybe a little disorganized don't have great means of transporting themselves. They're using maybe public transit, or they're just a little disorganized or struggling. They're more likely to struggling. A lot of times, they're last minute people. So the you know five minutes before the door locks, yeah. there's a rush. Of, and then you're you know, like, oh, the people the all need to see their counselors. <laughs> it's just like medical school, right? There's yeah. the gunners up front taking the best notes, and then there's the slackers in the back. Same thing, uh, human nature, I guess. And then throughout the day, there'll be waves, uh, and who knows? Just by random chance, you'll have a surge of people that all come at 10 a.m. for who knows why. And you got to sort of manage the surge. And um, usually there aren't that many people in the clinic, but occasionally there'll be 20 people in the lobby, you know. Uh, And then when a surge like that happens, then everybody, we get, you know, all the nurses who may be doing other things, who may be doing, you know, other documentation or regular, you know, 
regulation type activities. We'll pull all our nurses, we'll pull all our front desk people, and we'll just focus on managing the surge. And then when we get through that surge of people in the lobby, then people can go back to their other work. Sure. So, so, we'll, so these uh, have, we have to be people who are good at like... Multitask. Multi- yeah, huh? Yeah, well... Mm. I think our nurses, at least I'll speak for them, are amazing at multitasking. I'm, I'm Way so, better than I would be. I'm still oh. just a little concerned. Were you the guy in the front row oh, in medical yes. school? Yes. Yeah, I oh, kind of yeah. figured that. You were like, that's my spot right oh, in the middle yeah. of front row. And we all had to sit in our assigned seats that we didn't actually have assigned. Oh, so, yeah. so where was I? You were in the middle. I was in the middle. Were you in the middle? Yeah. You were. Okay. I was in the middle spinning my ring. medical school teacher from or instructor, professor... Still knew where he sat when we went up there yeah. in Duluth. Heather, where were you? I I was also in the middle, but more on a side. Ah. Near the bathroom. Near the bathroom. What? <laughs> the coffee and the water. Ah. You got to do stuff to keep you awake all day. You got to be like constantly drinking stuff. So oh, okay. Yeah, God, anyway. Funny. Sorry to go on that tangent. No, so okay. if you have, let's say, 500 people, 600 people within your whole clinic, yep. how many people are there Every day, or how many people average every day? So, because you said some people aren't there every day. So, yeah, oh, yeah. So, I didn't, yeah. So, it starts out six days a week for the first 90 days. And then over time, and I'm talking years, you earn more and more days off in which you show up, you get your daily dose, and then they give you a bottle for tomorrow. And you don't need to come back tomorrow. You just take your bottle of methadone, you, you know, and tomorrow morning you drink it on your own at your own home, wherever you're staying. Um, and so, you know, you can go from six days a week to five days a week and then, you know, uh, all the way down to once a week, once every other week. And the least frequent anyone can go to an OTP clinic is once a month. Wow. So the most number of bottles someone can take with them is, I think, t- actually 29. We almost never do 29. Usually we, 27. We always, it's like a yeah, four week. We usually do 27. But I think in rare instances, we've done... 29 doses because they technically once every 30 days is the minimum. You know, we have a lot of troubles with uh, suboxone disappear, or excuse me, buprenorphine disappearing. Yeah. Uh, if somebody has 29 vials of methadone, how often do you have that kind of trouble? Well, right. So the, uh, the, a lot of the rigors of these protocols is built around exactly that. It's like the big problem is disappearing methadone, diverted methadone, um, it happens, uh, and it is worrisome when it happens. Like that is the thing. If there's, if there's probably two things, but if there is one thing that keeps a methadone dock up at night, it's what happens if the bottles get lost, get taken, get sold, and somebody gets hurt. Because mm. a bottle of methadone for the for the patient is like fine they're tolerant to it it's healthy for them it helps them stay away from other drugs it's ultimately it's a good thing especially if it's dosed appropriately but for a random person on the street it would just kill them cold i mean right. just like an opiate naive person takes yeah. 100 milligrams of methadone and they are dead. out yeah good they're night dead. so let mm. me just point out kurt you would never be on even the once a week because lose you would lose oh, the other yeah. six days. I mean, you might like, lose the Sunday take home like, if you're on I, a daily. It's like, where did I put that? Well, so, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of the counseling has to do with uh, dose safety, and they need to demonstrate dose safety. And there's a lot of ways we check that they're being safe with their dose. They need these lock boxes. Mm. I mean, you know, a sledgehammer could break open a lock box in one swing. Yep. It's not about that so much. It's about... Um, 
a system to help the patient remember this is an important, valuable thing. Keep your keep it in your possession. Put it somewhere safe. And Plus to keep kids. the kids out of it. Yeah, yeah and to keep the kids out. Hey, yeah, and then there's callbacks, and there's a minimum number of callbacks we're supposed to do. I think we do, I think, one per quarter for people with take any serious amount of takeouts. Mm. Um, I don't know. I think the minimum might actually be two per year, but we do four per year. And um, Are those call- random, like, come totally in for a random. drug screen kind of deal? Drug screen and verify that you have all the doses you're supposed to have. None of the doses are missing. That's got to be really tough because one of the big issues we face in buprenorphine program is really getting people to answer their phone. And typically, it is very common that their voicemail is full. If you don't have a phone that you answer, you're not supposed to get takeouts. Uh, so you, like, literally... I mean, and occasionally happens. Someone gets breaks their phone or loses, changes their phone number. And when we discover that a person, we can't get in touch with a person, it's like priority number one. Wow. You put out a bolo? What's a bolo? No. <laughs> be on the you lookout. No. You don't watch it. Be on the lookout. It's like the cop thing. Uh, like when they put a bolo on in a car, they're okay. like looking for it's, that suspicious car. Bolo oh. is basically the opposite of YOLO. <laughs> you, you yeah, we, it we, is we i are, love it she's are, she are watching not. all the cop shows oh, okay, okay. that's where she's getting except stuff. yolo is like a kardashian thing yeah. so Kurt, I, catch up methadone clinics know. are not yolo no. they're they much more bolo <laughs> uh, than yolo that is true uh so oh, i think we just started something yeah <laughs> well uh <laughs> um no i mean you, yeah patients who we can't get in touch with they just can't get takeouts they're right. not going to get a takeout because if you get takeouts, you, we need to be able to get in touch with you mm-hmm. um, for a variety of reasons. Um, also, you, there's lots of reasons we want to be in touch with our patients. You know, mm-hmm. we see patients before they dose, so they are at their methadone trough. Mm-hmm. Like they get they get the methadone dose, and two hours later, it's at peak effect. Um, they're not almost never are they in the clinic two hours. We don't even really want them to spend two hours in our clinic. They, they're they gone. They're at home when the, when the methadone is at peak effect. Or and, at work. And at work. Yeah. Or they're in, they're in treatment. Mm-hmm. And if they're in treatment, we might get a call from the counselor in treatment saying they're wide awake, they're engaging, they're perfect. We might get a call saying they're sleeping through group. And that's really helpful for us. Yeah, but, for but, sure. But we don't see them. But, but boy, sometimes I'll say, Hey, Call, call Mrs. Jones two hours after the dose. Just check in with her. And so we really need them to answer their phone mm. um, because that's, that's a whole part of the safety thing. That's, you know, it's interesting because I'm assuming like any clinic, not all of them are created equally. And, you know, this, this a lot of oversight takes a lot of bodies yep. and that's a lot of patients and organization has got to be key. But, you know, I've met patients that, would start a methadone clinic and then just not go back. And do you, how much follow up or how much, and we get that question with buprenorphine too, like the patient doesn't show up. How many times do you keep calling yeah. them? It's interesting. That's a great question. So it's interesting. So, first of all, remember that the patient who's enrolled in the methadone clinic counts to our cap. Um, and so, even if they're not showing up, this, uh. they quote unquote belong to this counselor. This is one of the counselor's caseload. Um, so it's really important for us as a clinic to know, are they in or are they out? And the rule is they get 30 days of just no show before they have to be out. 
Now, we could discharge them on day five if they're not showing up. If they call us and they're like, hey, I'm out, I'm doing buprenorphine instead, and we can see that they got a buprenorphine prescription, we'll discharge them on that same day. But if we haven't heard from them, we're going to keep them for 30 days. And during that 30 days, we are frequently calling and saying, hey, is everything okay? Can we help? Are you in jail? Have you been hospitalized? What's going on? We're just going to try to sort all that out. So there's like a 30-day window where we're pretty intensely trying to figure out where they are, what's going on. Hmm. And if they call us or they answer the phone and they're just like, hey, I'm not interested. Would you say that that's pretty standard across the OTPs? How do you do it? I can't speak. To, I think the 30-day window is at least But I Minnesota. mean the calls. Trying to trying to get I them back in. I don't know. I don't I don't know. Um, I, mean, I will say I will say this about keeping them engaged. Methadone tends to have better retention actually yeah. than buprenorphine. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, but methadone the one year retention is higher than for buprenorphine. Yeah. I would, you know, and it, and I think that was a good question, Kurt, because even in buprenorphine clinics and OBOT, so office based treatment, it's, 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 it's so important to have that nurse or to have that coordinator, or to have that person that does call and yes. check in, you know, to have the nurse call the morning to remind them of an appointment and, there, that's not created equally, really, for anything. I mean, you could talk about diabetes and callbacks and all of that. Yep. Do you ever, or do you have it as part of your thing then to have like another person you have permission to call? So, like, if you can't get yeah. a hold of Jane Doe and for sure, and call mom, call mom, or call significant other. Yeah. You know, we try for that. Uh, not everybody has a person uh, that they want us to call, right? But we definitely try for that. We love to have, you know, if we had like a family member or a loved one that is trusted and of course we'll need a release of information mm-hmm. um then um yeah we, we call them for sure yeah so that's that's really helpful and i we often do that what about i know we're getting to time but i'm trying to get through all the the big thingies um what about thingies, thingies? is that a medical what about a patient who term? you know and i maybe let's talk about First, sorry, I'm jumping Hurt all over. My thingy hurts. Yeah, it's like. Can, can I get some medicine? Yeah. Can I get a cream for my thingy? Yeah, it's a oh medical term. I'm trying you to guys, get through all the thingies. Oh my gosh, you guys. <laughs> sorry. Um, we'll talk later, kids Charlie. Listen to this. I'll try and help if I can. I, get, yeah. I bet my 10 year old boy is going to like die laughing about this little 10 second segment yeah. we just took. Oh my gosh. Um, let's first talk about like an average or what an appropriate dose is because you mentioned, you know, yeah. they're in group and they're yeah. falling asleep because. Yeah. Obviously, I don't work in an OTP, never have. And there is a wide range of dosing that yeah. comes in. And so maybe let's talk about that. And then how the second part I think we can end with maybe is what do you do when someone wants to end or transition to a buprenorphine clinic? How do you play nicely in that sandbox without – because we've run – these are big issues we run into. Yep. Um, actually, now I am having a flashback memory of doing a podcast – maybe a year and three months ago to it was 2021 about methadone dosing specifically. So dig into the archives, but I, but I, and I think we have a whole thing on that. Um, But um, I, what I say is, so again, by regulation, the very first day, the very first dose should be no more than 30 milligrams. And then, if the person is still in obvious withdrawal, they can actually get a little additional 10 milligrams. So the absolute maximum first day dose is 40 milligrams. And then the first couple of weeks are going to be kind of tough as 
what we call the induction period, where the dose is not high enough to suppress cravings. They're frequently using, and actually the very first couple of weeks, induction period is a high-risk time for overdose because we're increasing oh. the methadone dose to try to get it therapeutic, and yet they're still using, um, so it is a high-risk time. Once they're typically over 60 milligrams, people start using less. And usually between 60 and 100 milligrams, most of our patients stop using opioids. Um, some patients get up to 105, 110, even 120 before they stop using opioids. Um, but the vast majority of patients get the primary therapeutic benefit is stopping opioid use. And then all the, then all the secondary benefits stream from that. Uh, the primary benefit is, I think, usually 60 to 100, 60 to 120 in that range. Hmm. And it, it'll, take, it'll take a couple weeks to get you up to the dose that's really working for you. Um, you know, you've talked before about once you get to that therapeutic range for that patient, yeah. there's, no, there's really no need to go higher. Can you explain why? Well, right. So then, yeah, if the primary treatment goal is extinguishing opioid use, and that's your target, and then you getting drug screens and you're talking to them and you achieve that goal, why would you go higher? A lot of times the patients are have untreated mental illness. Uh, mm. They want additional methadone for pain relief, or they just want additional methadone because it makes them feel good, whatever. Mm-hmm. Either uh, mental illness, pain relief, or just to help them relax or whatever. Um, whatever it is, they're going to request increased doses. And that's not like dead wrong to do that. I try to meet patients where they're at, but boy, you got to be cautious. And it takes a lot of energy. When a person is at 95 milligrams, they're not using opioids. Things are pretty good, but boy, they, they keep requesting more. Do you um, think that they feel, and I think what you're getting at, Kurt, is the tolerance question, yeah. is tolerance that is- patients... You know, they're used to, well, I was using, you know, Oxy and then I went to heroin and now like I have to use fentanyl because, and so the tall, there's a horse running in the background. Yeah, we are clearly awesome. not at Charlie's house today. Yeah. Um, you know, the tolerance thing, how do you. running in the background <laughs> of my house. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a squirrel paradise, my house. So what happens with tolerance with a person in an OTP methadone clinic? Because Ge- I think people are under that impression that yeah. it has to go up. No, I mean, generally there's basically people reach a stable dose that is works for them. And if, unless something else changes for them, they can maintain that dose basically indefinitely and decades, like decades. Mm-hmm. Um, but that said, um, we often have people who are stable, successful, doing great at say 70 milligrams. And then they, they want to go up now for the first time in five years. Often there's a little depression happening or there's um, some other life change, a lot of times you'll see people who were stable in treatment get out of treatment and they go back to their home environment where there's a lot more triggers Mm -hmm. and then they have more cravings and they want to go up. Or you'll see someone change their work and now they're working physical manual labor eight hours a day. A lot of physical stress and they'll want to go up. So so I'm looking for a reason like that. I'm never going to say oh, you've been at 80 milligrams for five years and you want to go up, that's just your tolerance. I'm never going to say that. Mm. I'm always going to look for that other stressor. Sure, sure. You know? Yeah. Now, how often do you taper down? I take, well, we taper, we never, it's probably the same answer as you would answer for buprenorphine. 
Uh, we never force a taper on anyone. However, many patients, many patients have achieved stability and they just want to know for themselves whether they need to be on this medication forever. Mm -hmm. And we respect that and we work with them. So we have at any time, uh, maybe a quarter of our patients are actively trying to lower their dose. And often they pause that, you know, they, they take some percentage off, maybe 20%, maybe 50% of their dose off. And then they want to pause for a while. Sometimes they go back up. Sometimes they go all the way to zero. Hmm. Uh, and when they leave, we just let them know, you're always welcome back if something were to happen. But um, good luck. And hmm. we don't always know what the outcome is there for people who taper off and leave. Yeah, I'll bet. Um, but, but yeah, tapering, I think it's probably similar to buprenorphine. Sure, sure. Uh, it's, it's a voluntary, interactive, slow taper. Gotcha. Okay, just to answer the question, yes, we did two methadone episodes, episode 83 and 84. Oh, yeah. So I think this was all probably repeat. But Methadone Clinics 101 and Methadone Nitty Gritty, and those were taped actually in December of 2021. So not even like legit six months ago. Yeah, but we are currently in some kind of like wormhole time warp, like crazy time of life. Everything is everything nutty right now. so okay. what are we going to do? going to end this one and do one on uh, COVID, what happened in COVID. What happened in methadone clinics and COVID and Perfect. now what's happening as COVID is... You know, another good one would be just do a 10-minute one on how do you transfer somebody from methadone that to That would be a good oh, one yeah. after we that. Could, we could do that as a wing it. Yeah, sounds good. All right. Anyway, talk to you next week. Thanks. When I was a little boy, I'd play outside with stones and sticks and hang upon your windowsill, wishing we could be... When you were a little girl, you wouldn't see that I exist. My knees would fail, my tongue be still, wishing we would meet. So wise, that's how a restless mind begins Stealing, drinking on the curb Forgetting we could be Loneliness is never far You slam the door into my chain How fortunate I've been tonight You finally know me Set them up.
Let's go down, drinking in the moon.